gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 49, the review segment for Friday, November 28th, 2014. Happy Black Friday, everybody. Uh, there are a ton of movies in theaters right now, uh, but in limited release this weekend is The Invitation Game, which we talked about to some degree on the main episode this week. And is that Alan Turing biopic starring Benedict Cumberbatch that isn't the Stephen Hawking biopic starring Eddie Redmayne? And I can't be the only person who keeps getting them confused and mixing up their titles. And I have seen both of them, so that's especially pathetic. Um, but it is a biopic about Alan Turing, who is a incredibly important scientist who I probably hadn't heard of until three or four years ago. I assume I'm maybe we're in similar boats here. Um, he's basically the guy who invented computer science. He was working in uh, coding and computers in the 40s and during World War II was enlisted by the British government to uh, decode Nazi transmissions uh, that were made using something called an Enigma machine, which is this fascinating like bread box sized keyboard typewriter thing that I don't really understand how it works and I don't think anybody does. Exactly. <laughs> we'll get there. That's the we'll, fucking we'll problem. We'll get there. That, um, is, th- that is not sorry. the fucking problem. No. It is That's a not fucking the problem. problem. Well, it's one of many um, problems. So the story is actually divided into three parts. Uh, it begins in the 50s where uh, someone is investigating a break-in in Alan Turing's house and he's a, a, an investigator and he said, I think Alan Turing is hiding something and then uh, it flashes back to World War II when he's working at Bletchley Park with a, a team of other mathematicians to break these codes. And then back to his childhood at a boarding school in uh, somewhere in England, apparently filmed at the real boarding school that Alan Turing went to, where he has a tight friendship with another student, a male student, who we then realize he's in love with. And this is how we realize part of what Alan Turing's secret is, because in Britain, uh, homosexuality remained a crime and well into the 50s. Um, so you kind of get this three-part story. You get uh, these revelations about this guy and then kind of a uh, code-cracking spy thriller in the middle of it, which I would argue is probably the best part of the movie. Um, and I, I think we're going to be hard on the imitation game because I think there's a lot of things to be hard on it for. But I want to say to begin with, I did enjoy this movie. I, I think especially well, the World War II parts of it are really satisfying. Matthew Good, consistently underrated in everything he does, yes. is really good in this, as is Kira Knightley, who's the oh. uh, the only female mathematician at Bletchley Park and uh, was uh, Alan Turing's fiance for a time. Um, I think Cumberbatch is really good. I think there's a lot to enjoy in this movie, even though it's uh, directed by uh, Morton Tildum. Am I getting... I think yep. I'm pronouncing that right. It's directed by him in maybe the blandest, most obvious biopicy way which includes uh showing the computer machine working with footage of hitler screaming over it just to show how important it is that the war is ongoing um so there's a lot of kind of blah weinstein company biopic stuff in there and a lot of stuff it doesn't get about science which we have discussed um but i do like this movie i think i'm <laughs> yeah what do you like will, about it then and, because we're well, being pretty hard middle, on like it. I, I think it's a good spy movie i think the performances are really good i think the kind of it doesn't really do enough with the injustice of how how Alan Turing's life ended and kind of what was done to him by the government he worked for, but it kind of gets enough to it that you feel that sense of like of outrage. Um, and it makes I, I mean the the stuff where they're 
beaten the Nazis is pretty sad. I, I think Katie is totally at the nail on the head. I think that you know this movie is a lot more entertaining than uh, the theory of everything, but it also happens to be a lot more disrespectful to its subject and uh, the, his story. I think uh, this is a movie that is at its best during the espionage, World War II. Uh, espionage is probably the wrong word, but the, the code-breaking, code yeah. Um, and it, it, there are moments where it tips really into saccharine bullshit. There, the, there's a moment that anyone who's seen the movie, you know, my brother was on that boat. Uh, yeah, wildly oh, unnecessary stuff. But it, it's exciting to see them try, race against time to uh, every day at 6 a.m. The Germans update their code and send out this message or every day at midnight, rather. And then at 6 a.m. they have this code and then they're racing against the clock. Um, it, it's fascinating. Um as you can only imagine how – begin to imagine how fascinating it must have been uh, when it is actually happening. But the story structure, yeah, it, it ultimately is weighted in a way that is a complete disservice to how Alan Turing was betrayed by his country. It essentially – the whole movie is like, and then he won the war for the British or shaved it by two years and saved millions of lives. And then they chemically castrated him because he was gay in the, the end. It, like literally the movie ends yeah. the title card saying like, and now we call his machines computers. Also, he, they fucking killed him. Yeah. <laughs> like, and didn't pardon him until 2013. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, it's it's forcing a very complicated person's life into a three-act structure, and it doesn't work. Like, there's a miniseries to be made about Alan Turing because there's one movie about how he codes. There's a great – you know, internal drama where they're all stuck in a room and it's people, it's just like sweat dripping down people's faces as they're trying to crack the codes and it can be that espionage thriller. Um, but you can't make it with the the repressed sexuality storyline. It has to be another component of the movie and trying to stuff it all into one. And all the fun, all, all like the fun biopicky bits, like the first 30 minutes where they're showing how we became involved in this, this contentious relationship with the superiors and then how Kira Knightley comes into the equation. Um, all these things are, are fun to watch but are completely unsubstantial and is time that could have been better served uh, in, a, in a better more complete movie. It doesn't feel like a big deal when he hires Kira Knightley. Like that doesn't feel like a momentous well, kind occasion of like, for the, the, for oh, the well, science. I, think, I don't think he would have thought of it that way. I mean, Alan mm. Turing himself seems pretty unconcerned with a lot of the social mores that were surrounding him to the point that, I mean, based on some reports, like he was openly gay in a lot of ways in a way that most people weren't at the time. And I like that they kind of, he hires her because it makes perfect sense to him and everyone else is kind of like, Hmm, a woman, that's weird. Um, I think there are bits of that about his personality that kind of come through to tell you a lot about him that aren't kind of illustrated in the way that, you know, many biopics might do. And I disagree with, and I disagree with you, Patches, that the stuff about his sexuality and the coding really needs to be in separate movies because I do – I think they're part and parcel of the same thing as someone who's an outsider, someone whose brain doesn't work the same way as everyone else, which helps him be able to understand how these computers work. I mean the whole idea of the Turing test and kind of literally understanding computers as if they are personalities – that's something he was uniquely able to do for a lot of reasons, and being an outsider in that way was part of it. Maybe. It just doesn't fit. Like They they don't attempt to connect the dots no, they between don't. how his brain works and, and how he is an introvert and, and hiding this from, well, for good reason, because he would be arrested or, or chemically castrated. That, that's the case. And, and the attempts they do make to connect... Um, you know, as we mentioned, the movie starts in media res, uh, years ahead of the events that we're about to see, for, for pretty much no reason, what I gather. I mean, I really hated the kind of framework of this movie, despite, as you mentioned, really enjoying 
the kind of sitting down and breaking the code stuff because it just doesn't – there's no connective tissue between any of this stuff. No one's drawing any lines, and maybe we shouldn't be drawing those lines. Maybe these things are really just two different aspects of one man that can't be connected by Hollywood gloss, and they can't be in the same movie. They're just two different Which men Which is why operating I think, here. you know, rather than trying to get in his head and explain him like the movie does, it should have – to my mind, focused on how this man who was beyond integral to Britain's war effort and to the 20th century as a whole was mercilessly betrayed by his own country, the country that he saved, uh, because of who he was. I mean, just naturally. And that that is a fascinating and terrible story. And that's what the movie sh- like throws under the table uh, by spending so much time trying to, to friendly him up and introduce him to you and, and – uh, I just I think the movie doesn't have the bravery. It's a cowardly movie. Yeah, um, the, the cowardliness, especially with the way that it ends, that kind of basically just puts in a title being like, and then a year later he was dead. It, it's so scared of what the truth of it is. And I think other people have criticized kind of the lack of gayness of the movie overall, like how you're not really seeing him, you know, pursuing, like interested in anyone sexually whatsoever. And someone made the point that that uh, it proves how much he hated Matthew Good is that he wasn't attracted to him at all because who wouldn't be attracted to Matthew Good? Um, <laughs> but, I mean, there's nothing, there's Fair. elements of that that feel, I can't, I can't argue whether or not those needed to be part of the story because all of the Bletchley Park stuff is so much just about the work. But there is that cowardliness kind of builds until you get to the end of it and you're like, I realize you're making a movie about kind of, I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch has referred to him repeatedly as a gay icon. Like, they know that they're making that. You know, the Turing biopic of the 70s would have been really different. But it still feels like they don't quite have the courage to go there. Well, I think it's a fair criticism because this movie is all about telling and not showing. So he doesn't really have any relationships. He doesn't have a sexuality, yet he insists that he's gay. He, we, we know that he's solving these amazing mathematical problems that will eventually save uh, Britain or and, and end the war early. But we don't see it. You know, we, as we mentioned earlier in the week, the, he builds this – Turing machine and we see it not working for so long and I just don't know how the Turing machine actually works the whole movie is about this machine and its functionality and at no point does someone say like this is what might not be working or it cranks and like uh, what is the director's name I mean, I, I, <laughs> uh, he, he, he does these shots like close up of it all cranking and he's kind of obsessed with this machine and maybe how it relates to Alan. But we again, we're, it's up close and personal with this thing that we don't understand and we're never going to get. I, that did, I did feel like uh, and, you know, my, my I am a terrible mind for science, um, but I do remember a scene where they're talking about how it it, 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 it like tries to block all of these receptors. It goes through it and it blocks all of these things and sees. I don't know. It made it made some right. You can set yeah, dials. To my completely and uh, ignorant sort of brain. It made enough sense in the context of it that that it didn't give me everything, but it, it sort of preyed on my imagination and, and let me meet it halfway. I wasn't particularly dissatisfied. But why with that. prey on your imagination? Because I don't need a twenty minute. I mean, <laughs> if I you know, it's it's neat if I get home. And have a, a newfound interest in Alan Turing and want to read up about how this machine worked and explain and take the time to learn about it in a way that I wouldn't want a movie to pause its narrative to teach me. Do I think that the movie should have better reflected how his brain worked as we were discussing in this week's uh, main episode? Absolutely. But I don't think that I necessarily needed to know the ins and outs of the machine in an explicit way. Katie, I'm very curious. This is not really a question yeah. for David, but he can participate too. I, I 
you know, we're, we're lauding Benedict Cumberbatch here for his performance and maybe Keira Knightley too. And they'll certainly get a lot of praise as the award season plays out. What did, what did you think about the performances? Are these are these great performances? Is this like the best thing that Benedict Cumberbatch has ever done? Is he the second coming of acting? I mean, I think the best thing he's done is Sherlock and probably will remain that for a while. Um, but I think they're both really good at it. I think they both kind of play these like driven weirdos who are interested in computers more than they are in other people. I think they have a nice rapport among them. I kind of see why they would be engaged even though there's obviously no sexual chemistry between the two of them. And I like the way that they and the rest of the cast bounce off each other. Like there are these, there's these scenes where it's Mark Strong and Benedict Cumberbatch kind of glowering at each other and those are great. And then Cumberbatch and uh, Charles dance and those are great. There's a lot of good combinations of people People. Even if not, like, I don't think any of these performances are revelatory. Like, none, nothing, I didn't learn anything about any of these actors I didn't know before. But I like watching this combination of British talent kind of go after each other and, you know, scream and fight and then uh, have grudging respect. Like, it hits all the beats in a way that. They're great. And it's why it, it makes, it gives yeah. the movie permission to be as blandly directed as it yeah, is. Exactly. All, you know, two shots and everything. And not just blandly, like, camera movie it like it looks, it looks just really crappy. dry and boring there's no i feel like there's no cinematography in this movie uh, even compared to something like theory of everything which i didn't love that much at least it had like a glow that somehow reflected these characters there's nothing happening picture wise in this movie that that really uh amplifies everything the actors but are giving it to it all this we do have uh, i think we are duty bound to sing the praises of uh, alexander Desplat's score which uh, Patches can talk about in a little greater detail. Burrowing but into it's, my head uh, more and more. I, I was yes. not surprised that this is one of his stronger efforts because I think that this plot excels when he works in a more uh, symphonic, classical vein uh, and it doesn't default to the sort of the boring – I mean there are some memorable moments in like the Godzilla score for example. But I think he really tosses some generic junk for, for like Zero Dark Thirty and Argo. And I think when he defaults to Bombast, uh, it's not – nearly as distinctive as it is when he does something like birth or uh or even philomena um or uh, you know it's great it's great or you know lust caution or the great budapest hotel or uh the tree of life you go on and on and on uh and his score here uh, as all that patches explained does tap into uh, alan turing's mind better than anything in the film does and yeah so i totally agree with that and yet while watching the film I didn't think much about it because it felt like the score was propelling it forward so much that it was it was turning me off a little. You were just like, when can I get home and get the album? <laughs> yeah, I want to sit down and listen to this as opposed to have it rush. I mean, there's just no momentum to the movie. The, the individual scenes in this film are much more impactful than uh, the macro sense of it all, the kind of forward drive, uh, you know, put – Cumberbatch in a pub with Keira Knightley and staring at Matthew Good from afar when they're like talking about getting him or whatever. That's really that's a great little scene. Um, or when they're you know in the are they in a lab? What, what are we calling um, that? Their, their workplace, their lab, factory, sure. <laughs> code sure. factory. Um, you know, I love the scene where they all make the discovery and they're shuffling. And they're papers. running from room to the, room. These moments yeah. of discovery. That's that's like. That's when you start to understand how it works a little bit, right? That they find this message that allows them to knock a few letters out of the code each day, and now the machine can process a little faster. I mean, that's a revelatory moment. I love discovery in film, and when Alexander Desplat can kick into full swing, and they can be running around the the code factory and and breaking this thing, and and 
feeling, killing, coming, camaraderie. Like that's something just needs more of, or a, a, a better evolution of this camaraderie that they build. But these actors are so likable that uh, they just bring it anyway. Uh, so I think this plot score at times kind of does the heavy lifting in a way you don't want it to have to uh, because um, it can be so complimentative. And what's interesting too about, I, I have to note this because it was so funny to hear this, David, you were talking about you, you like the spa leaning into the orchestral uh, as opposed to like the big and maybe digital or whatever. Um, but apparently, so this whole piano score was like partially digitized. He programmed computers to create uh, archipe- arpeggios, uh, not archipelagos, whatever. Arpeggios, yes. Um, he programmed them to to randomize and play these motifs that he would orchestrate around, which I thought was really interesting. So computers like are still essential. Um, talking about individual scenes, I, yeah. the only I will stick up for the frame story of the detective investigation of the fifties, only for the scene between uh, where Alatern is brought into the office and he kind of talks to the detective who's been after him. I thought that was a really nice scene. Like, there's a lot of him kind of talking about himself for the first time in the movie when a lot of the rest of it's about him not acknowledging whatever about himself. No, we do, but seeing him say them out loud and like watching the kind of confrontational way he addresses this thing about himself that is an arrestable offense is really interesting. I I, I just like the way that scene was acted like a lot of the others in the movie that I liked watching these two actors bounce off each other. But all the scenes in the uh, boarding school are crap and naming the machine Christopher is insane. I, I mean, I, uh, it's one of those details that's so unusual that I, I, I gave it the benefit of the doubt and assumed like that it had it to had come to from real. fact. And I feel like I read something to that effect that it, it was at least based in truth. Uh, so I don't want to uh, chide the filmmakers for that. But uh, if it does turn out that I'm wrong and that it was invented, that that is a silly choice. But it's. There are other moments that are absolutely like, fiction that like what? are easier to take to task. Well, as David mentioned, there's there's an aha moment where not only oh. are people in the world being bombed, but like someone in the room that they're with is is emotionally invested in the situation. And then the war becomes personal somehow. I mean, it doesn't because we already feel the presence of the war outside of these rooms. It doesn't really have to um, make it melodramatic. And I think that's a problem for the movie. Yeah. And yet I, I like the movie. I, I, I'm ultimately kind of fond of it, but... It just, it should be so much better. It should be so much tighter. And I really think it all falls on the direction. It's really piss poor in that department. Before we wrap up today's episode, I want to talk about the movie that I watched because these two made me (laughs) and then cowered in fear behind my cat for an hour and a half. And uh, I'm still really glad I watched it. But you guys, the Babadook movie is fucking terrifying. (laughs) Oh, my God. Babadook. Uh, David, you've been raving about this movie. I don't remember where you saw it, but you've been. I saw it at New Directors, New Films. in in March, and uh, I I think it's absolutely incredible. It scared the shit out of me. Uh, but I scare easily in, in horror movies. I think this was different. This uh, it, it does have jump scares, but the jump scares are all the scarier because of how. Uh, well crafted they are and how they serve the themes of the story but let's back up a minute the babadook is uh the first feature by jennifer kent who's a an australian filmmaker who you know 
not to go too overboard here, but really, I mean, like, she reminds me of like a Ben Wheatley sized talent or somebody who could really be a major player in this genre if she yeah. wanted to be. Totally. Uh, this story, it, it sounds silly on paper. Uh, it is the story of a woman who's played by the incredible best performance of the year, Essie Davis, uh, who, when in, in a dream prologue, we understand seven years before the movie starts, uh, while she was being driven by her husband to the hospital while she was in labor, uh, they got into a car accident. The husband was killed. She gave birth to a son who is a very special child. Um, and they are living together in sort of a tense relationship. She obviously is a, she's a fraught relationship with him. She loves him, but of course she sees him as this emblem of her, of her grief. Uh, and she's clearly still grieving. And one day, this book, a children's pop-up book called The Duke. they see it on her shelf, uh, on the son's bookshelf, and she reads it to the son. She doesn't know where it came from, and it is the most horrifying thing imaginable. <laughs> and uh, a few a few days later, or the next day, whatever the case might be, uh, she starts to – well, the son starts to think that the, the Duke is coming for them, this monster from the storybook. And uh, S.C. Davis grows uh, – her character grows increasingly convinced. Um, I – I, you know, I, I hate to throw the horror genre under the bus like this, and, and I don't mean to be as callous as this is going to sound, but I feel like uh, Jack Horner in in Boogie Nights when he watches the their porn and he's like, this is a, you know, you made a real movie. Or no, someone else says that to, to him. He's like, this is a real movie. Um, that's how I feel. Like, The Duke is a real movie. It is not Ouija or something like this. This is, this is a, you know, it, it's a phenomenal horror film. It shows what the, the genre is capable of and why uh, people, people love it and why it sticks with them. But it's also, uh, it, it's really just a, a really, it's a brilliant film. It's as, visceral and gripping uh, and I think and uh, well illustrated a depiction of the grieving process as any movie I can remember uh, I think it's so intelligent about the choices that it makes it also looks and feels like something as opposed to just like over process yeah. uh, horror imagery has become very yeah for me. it's I also it's so that well is. like it's not but just the, the composition I mean the the cinematography which is great but Jennifer Ken just knows what she's doing with the camera I mean like the 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 way she shoots the action is geared for maximum horror. The things that you don't see are, uh, as in so much of the best horror, so much scarier than the things that you do. And the performances, I cannot say enough about them. They're just incredible. Even her her son in particular. Oh, my God. They're so good. It's interesting that you think it's so much so clearly about grieving, which, I mean, uh, the movie is definitely about grief. But I thought it be, as being so much about motherhood specifically. Sure. The yeah, idea yeah. of, like, you know, the child is something you love, but, like, a succubus who's, like, there to ruin your life. It's and, sort like, of like this a – thing that has come out of you that lives with you that you are stuck with. It felt like, like uh, we need to talk about Kevin as a mm-hmm. monster movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it really did. And then, but then also the reverse side of that, where you are as a parent, this creature who has so much power over your child and who has to control all of these impulses you have to kind of rid yourself of this thing you've brought into the world. There's the, the, the way that it does both sides of that, that it kind of starts off with like the kid as being the monster. And then as you get further along, it like kind of treats parenthood as being this monstrous act. Like it's so fascinating the way that it, the way that it, Kind of does that, and it made me think about Jennifer Kent as a female filmmaker, and like what a male filmmaker might have brought to that would have been really different. I don't know if she's a mother, but like I think there's a femininity to that that's really specific and fascinating. Well, I think it's about 
how hard she pushes into it. I mean, there might be trepidation there yeah. if it was a, a male filmmaker to not go there at times, to like hate this child, be a mother who could do that. A lot of people yeah. don't believe that it's possible to feel that way. But uh, David, hearing you say that it's like, we need to talk about Kevin with a monster is so funny because as you mentioned in the beginning, on paper, that, that just sounds like something that could go horribly wrong. Like here's something that doesn't need to be externalized at all. It should be pent up and like, just between two characters. We don't need a monster in it. And yet this movie seems to pull it off. I mean, when when the Babadook emerges, it's creepy as fuck. And, but, it's and, always, and the theme is always at the forefront. It is, there's never anything in this movie as terrifying as it is that is just for its own sake and self-serving. This is always, it can never takes her eye off the ball as to what this movie is about. How does it do, like, I saw this movie at midnight on one like the eighth day of Sundance. I was out of my mind. So my head was spinning already and I just got sucked into this thing. I'm trying to remember how the Babadook is introduced or well, how why, why does so, it, why do we allow this in, to happen? It's, like, it's in the book. This thing that should never so be externalized. Like how, like how does the character show up? It's in the book. Well, I, I really mean like I, I keep resisting the idea of externalizing this problem and, and that it's just something that we don't see very often or we shouldn't see very often because it could go so horribly wrong and we don't need to be on the nose about it. And yet this movie elegantly puts this monster. Yeah, and I think uh, the movie itself. has a really it's, it's, it, it's a really interesting tactic of not withholding information where it's not sort of just frustrating and that it refuses to tell you more about what's going on, but making it's as destabilizing to watch as it must be for S. C. Davis's character to experience where you feel how, how real this threat is, but it, it, and and what it means and what what it represents morphs slowly as as the uh, as the source yeah, of the I, I don't want to say too much but as the kid goes from uh, well Essie Davis's relationship with the Babadook changes significantly over the course of the movie I'll say that I think noting the compositions is really key here because I think of a movie like Mama which kind of goes after the same idea. <laughs> Um, but it has this ghost and it's really flat and it's just a, a chasing you around the house kind of movie. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like the Babadook plays with levels and height and like this shadowy image and being higher than her or like being in her face or like twirling around. I don't know. It just seems like the compositions are really key to making this monster play as opposed to just having a scary monster movie. Yeah, there's a there's so much fascinating stuff in this. It made me like I also scary in horror movies and it made me kind of resent the way that so many talented filmmakers will do horror because there's so many stylish ways you can do it. And I like it made me think of uh, the plain scheme of your repulsion, like where you just see the sense of style emerging in a what could be a really stock genre thing. Um, so I will keep watching horror movies that are this good and I will uh, whimper the entire time. I like that her friends, her... Yeah, her friends. And right? I love they that they introduce... Oh, it's like her point. sister. Like it's their her whole life. Her whole life is just falling apart oh yeah her sister they're just like imploding and i, I love so how horrible. they introduce a and this is the kind of thing that i think would never fly in uh certainly not in a studio movie because there'd be a million notes about this uh but they introduce a love interest and then he just drops out of the movie and it's not because jennifer Kent just forgot about him in her 10 years of, of making this movie happen uh but it, you know it, it's you, she se davis's character is so wrapped up in what's happening with the babadook that that's not really on the table for her this this whole I mean, she never interested in the first place you know to be to be honest and i think that's really interesting and uh makes everything that follows feel that much more true to her experience so 
Babadook. I don't know how it's available to be seen, but uh, it's it's out there. I believe it's on DirecTV right now, but it's going to be in theaters oh finally God. this weekend. Uh, right now. Get it's ready in theaters. To scare yourself. And if you're not scared of it, don't tell me. Actually, whatever. I'm not ashamed of being scared of this movie. I don't even care. I should be scared of it. You shouldn't be. Uh, Babadook. Babadook. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We will be back next week with the Quarter Quell. It's uh, that time again. Very exciting. And then we're going to be leading right into our top tens for the year. It's a really good time for this podcast. So please stick around. It's a great time to be us. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully the listeners, too. I'm hoping they enjoy this. We definitely do. Uh, In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write all across the internet and try and put everything on mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. <laughs> I am David Ehrlich. I am the associate film editor of Time Out New York. I am also the editor at large of Little White Lies. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And I am Katie Rich. You can find me on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H on the machine otherwise known as your Christopher machine. Uh, and um, at, also at Vanity Fairs Hollywood. Thank you for listening. Happy Thanksgiving. And we'll be back talking to you from the quarter quell from the arena next week. We only come out at night. We only come.